What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 100 of the 2QB Experience, uh, the 2QB XP. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. And for this very special first ever triple digit numbered episode, I'm bringing back the original co-host, Joshua Lake, formerly of 2QBs.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Lake2QBs. Josh, man, it's good to have you back. How you doing? Man, it is great to be back. Memories, it's a pleasure to be back on talking with you. Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been, I think, over a year since we last talked over Skype, at least according to the timestamp that I looked at. And uh, I don't know, man, how, just what have you been up to? How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, real life is kind of taking up most of the bandwidth these days. I play fantasy football, but much more casually. It's really... I miss it, but real life has been good, work, family, things like that, but it just means I'm online and checking in far less often. So doing what I can, but glad you guys are still out here grinding. Yeah, living a more or balanced life is probably good for you. How are your teams doing this season? Not too bad. I'm down to just three redraft leagues from, I think it was at seven or eight last year. Um, two of those are, I'm kind of top team in two of those leagues, and then I'm probably out of the playoffs in the other one. So a mixed bag, but not too bad. Any themes or trends between the two teams that are doing good? Like, do you have any similar players on those two or um, similar draft strategies, anything along those lines? One of them is the Scott Fishbowl, where the, I feel like the settings are so unique, it's really hard to, to draw lessons, and even even that league changes year to year. Um, the other league is, is a, my only one quarterback league. It's just a work league, and waiting until like the 12th round to draft a quarterback and just hammering wide receiver and running back has done me well. Nice. Who did you end up with as your QBs in the Scott Fishbowl? In the Scott Fishbowl, I've got Brady and Luck. It's worked out pretty well, Luck. I'd have to look back, but I feel like Luck fell to me farther than I expected him to. Yeah, that was kind of a recurring theme throughout draft season as people were paranoid about him coming back from injury. I, w I was not one of those people, but at the same time, when they brought in Jacoby Brissett for that one Hail Mary pass kind of <laughs> earlier in the year, I, I did get a little nervous about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I will admit to being nervous in the offseason. I kind of I did not think I was going to be drafting him very very often, but Scott Fishbowl is one of those where when you have that many teams in a league, you play like a GPP and you just kind of take shots where you can. And so it's working out for me, but I, I was one of the ones that was thinking, man, there are a lot of red flags with, with Lux Health at this point, and he's kind of proving that wrong. Yeah. Now, week to week, you don't have as much management to do with only three leagues, but I, I'm curious, are you a Sunday morning lineup or roster tinkerer? Do you like to make changes last minute? Do you try to stay hands-off? Because this is something I've been struggling with this season. I feel like every time I, I make a move, it burns me. Every time I don't make a move, it burns me. I just feel like I can't get it right sometimes. <laughs> and I'm wondering where you fall on that spectrum of, of tinkerer or non-tinkerer. I tend not to. I tends to be that I've set my lineup pretty well by Friday or Saturday, and all I'm doing is looking in at the inactives, um, kind of those few guys where you see the Q or the D by their name, and you you know to be looking in. So this week that was Gronk, Sony, Michelle. I don't know why it was all Patriots, but those are the two I was checking back in on and making decisions Sunday morning. But mm -hmm. other than that, I don't I don't tend to. I tend to settle on something and stick with kind of my gut instinct. Yeah, thankfully, one of my tinkers this week was to take Sony Michelle out and put in Duke Johnson, and that worked out oh, wow. very, very well. Um, and the opposite end of that spectrum is is a move that I did not make, where I had Elijah McGuire penciled in as a PPR running back. There was the news surrounding Chris Carson saying maybe he wasn't going to be 100% healthy, and I had Mike Davis on my bench. I'm like, well, maybe I should put Davis in over Elijah Maguire. Maybe Davis has a better ceiling. And then I kind of just talked myself into Maguire based on passing upside alone. Like just because it's a PPR league, I thought, well, you know what? It's not like Isaiah Crowell catches a ton of passes. Maybe I should just stick with And I also had that in my mind. I'm just going to stick with what I was planning to do, you know, yesterday, two days ago. And we'll go from there because I like Mike Davis wasn't even even on my radar uh, leading up to Sunday. It was just Sunday morning. I kind of got it in the back of my head that maybe I could plug him in over McGuire, and I should have, you know, looking at the way they scored. But I don't know. I don't feel too bad about that decision. Right. You, you never know. And, I mean, it can bite you either way, and you tend to remember the most recent or the biggest pain you felt. I mean, I know in response to your question, not tinkering, 
I have a standard league, my work league, where I thought about starting Duke Johnson over carry on Johnson. And I just said, you know, it's getting too cute. I believe in Duke. It's a new coaching scheme, but he's shown nothing at this point. I'm not going to do it. And obviously it burned me. I'm still going to get a win, but it's one of those where I, I think that's one of the things you miss out on. If you're not doing those last minute tinkerings, you might miss the first blow up week for a bench player. Yeah, but I think you're absolutely right on Duke Johnson. I mean, the only real reason I put him in was because I couldn't trust Michelle. Like, I would have rather started Michelle and, and went with Michelle if I had known he was going to play. But because there was some question about him getting on the field, I just had to go with the guy I knew was going to get snaps, even if it was a more questionable play with Duke Johnson. It's um Yeah, it's tricky. But yeah, Duke Johnson had a big week. Uh, let's talk about what else we saw in Week 9. And big picture, Josh, what stood out to you? I feel like I one thing that stands out to me is we're really starting to see the breaking point between the good and the bad teams. There's not many of the pretenders left. So this week, teams like Detroit and Baltimore, watching them kind of drop off the edge when they play the good teams. The In their cases, it was Minnesota and Pittsburgh. And seeing these playoff contenders take apart, these kind of pretenders are what I consider pretenders. I think we have very few teams, and for fantasy, that means very few offenses where we're unsure what they are week to week. We're starting to see more clear pictures of who's good, who's not. What are the offenses where you can expect several touchdowns? And that was one of the things that stood out to me is kind of the differentiation is really becoming clear at this point. What about you? Yeah, so for me, it's it's just more about, even more about this kind of age of offense that we're in in 2018. And I'm just continually impressed by how good the schemes are, how good the offenses are that are comprised of these players. And it's not every team, of course. Like you said, there are some teams that are bad. But the thing that kind of stood out to me, and and I really got this feeling watching the Packers and Patriots on Sunday night, is that this age of offense that we're in has kind of made, I mean, it should make the coaches into stars, and in some cases it has. Like, you think about Sean McVay and how high a profile he has. Bill mm-hmm. Belichick was already there, but, you know, he had kind of the the Super Bowl wins as cachet behind his reputation. But now we're looking at, you know, uh, Matt Nagy, Andy Reid, this kind of new generation of, of offensive coach. I guess Andy Reid isn't new, but that new style of offense that's heavy on run-pass options, a lot of this jet sweep motion that you're seeing. And for me, the kind of the big takeaway is that scheme is just another part of a player supporting cast at this point and scheme is going to dictate usage of players and pace of play in that Packers Patriots game I I was just really taken in by how methodical Belichick and Brady were with their use of the play clock and hard counts and kind of what that did to the game right like Brady had a pretty good game the Patriots won and it wasn't particularly close, I guess. I mean, it, it was a fine game, but it, it, I mean, the Patriots, I think, won that pretty convincingly. You can disagree if you want, I guess. But um, what stood out to me was how deliberate and slow the Patriots were when they held the ball, specifically to keep the ball out of Rodgers' hands, right? And the impact that that sort of play calling script has on Tom Brady, right? He's throwing the ball less. In fewer snaps in general means that him and his players are not going to score as many fantasy points. And if we can start to sniff that stuff out, you know, as we get smarter about how, like, how to predict pace from teams, I think that that could be another, you know, arrow in our quiver when it comes to fantasy analysis. I've been rambling here for a little bit. Does any of this vibe with you, Josh? (laughs) Yeah, it does, and I find it to be one of the areas that's hard to predict, at least for me, especially as a casual watcher. Mm -hmm. And even with just watching the game last night that you're talking about, I saw what you're talking about with the Patriots, but it was interesting that the announcers, the commentators, were keying in on the couple of drives where the the Patriots went up-tempo, right? And they're just right. bam, 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 five, ten seconds into the play clock. It feels like they're already snapping the ball again. But it was it seemed like that was the minority of, of drives, at least to my untrained eye. And it was, for the most part, it was what you were talking about, trying to keep the ball away versus like everyone knew coming into this week that the the Saints Rams games was going to be that up tempo lots of exposure you want to be in this game because there's going to be lots of scoring opportunities right and it was just interesting hearing the commentators treat the Patriots like that when it really didn't play like that for most of the game yeah definitely and I, I think that that mixing up is probably what makes it even more effective like you can tell they're a well-coached team because 
they don't show you the same looks all the time because they don't show you the same snap counts every time because they use different amounts of the play clock to their advantage. And the fact that they go up tempo some of the time means that when they do try to slow it down and use those hard counts, that they're going to get the defense to bite more often, right? And and you see, you know, the best teams, the best quarterbacks get that sort of stuff a lot more often. Like Peyton Manning was always really good at that. Aaron Rodgers himself is good at the hard count. And that stuff doesn't really translate to fantasy all the time, but I think... Again, this is one aspect of the game that I've been a little more clued into this season, and it matters a little bit more to me. And like you, I'm not super good at predicting it, but I think that you know, if we do give a little bit more mindfulness to that aspect of the game, that it could pay off for us in fantasy, because what we really want is that confluence of scheme and talent, right? We want to find the teams that know how to use their players and have good players to use. And when those things come together, that's where you really want to focus your efforts in fantasy football, especially in drafting. And I think that's something that we've been doing for a long time is targeting the good offenses. I just think what a good offense is, is changing now because offense is up across the board. And so you kind of have to nibble a little bit more around these margins of looking for teams that are generally going to use a higher pace and things like that. Um, I want to get back to what you were talking about at that about that delineation between good teams and bad teams real quick. What's the team that stands out to you as is still the biggest unknown? Like what team are you having the hardest time getting a read on? The one that leaps to mind and I didn't prep this is I'm still a Washington Redskins fan through thick and thin and that's a team that I really can't read where they've had just two ugly ugly losses to the Falcons and the Saints. And other than that, they've looked pretty solid, not in the offensive explosive. They've never been that. I mean, Alex Smith has, what, nine touchdowns through eight games. But this is, seems like a solid, reliable team when they play inside the division. They play the mediocre teams. They look good. The defense especially looks pretty good. And then they play these good teams in the NFC, the ones with the strong offenses, the ones that are clearly going to go deep into the playoffs. And they look miserable, just disastrous. And I think we probably will talk a little more about them later on, but that's one team that I've had a hard time really pinning down who they're going to be this year. Yeah, I, I definitely feel you on that. And this week probably isn't going to help because they're playing Tampa and, and everybody looks good mm -hmm. against, against Tampa. But um, yeah, we'll save the Washington talk for a little bit later in the show. I want to talk a little bit with you about home road splits. And we're not going to go super deep into this, but Coming into week nine, there was a lot of narrative around Ben Roethlisberger going on the road at Baltimore, Matt Ryan going on the road at Washington, and both of those players kind of disproved that narrative that they're going to struggle on the road. And you can find reasons for why they did or did not struggle in, in certain games, and, and that's kind of not what I want to get into, but I guess more what I'm trying to bring up is this idea that just because a player has a pronounced split doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case, and... I do think there are ways to sniff this stuff out ahead of time. Um, in the case of Matt Ryan going on the road against Washington, Washington suffered a lot of injuries in that game, so I, I don't want to read too much into it. Uh, but Roethlisberger is kind of the flip side of that coin, where I know that Baltimore has a good defense, but you know that the Steelers are going to show up for that game because it's a divisional game. You know that you're probably going to get the best Roethlisberger possible. And considering that... I, I mean, this is my personal opinion. I believe that the Steelers are just a much better team than the Ravens are. And I think with that in mind, while it's okay to fade Roethlisberger because he's playing on the road, because he's playing against a relatively good defense in the Ravens, uh, I mean, before this week, I guess we would have called them a very good defense, but I just don't think you can ever rule out a ceiling game from players that are as good as Matt Ryan and Ben Roethlisberger. And so if you're ranking these guys, that always kind of has to be in the forefront of your mind, right? Like, you're not going to start... Mitchell Trubisky over either of those guys, or, or even Alex Smith against Washington, like or against the Falcons on the other side of the ball. Like Smith is a fine player, and the Falcons are a good matchup. But just based on talent alone, you would have had to start Ryan or Roethlisberger ahead of him. Would you have made that same sort of decision in Week Nine? I mean, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does, and I think you're right. And I, I won't dig into all of the, the drama of it, but I think this is some of what Josh Hermsmeyer has been talking about with whether or not defenses matter is how much you should weight the matchup when you're looking at the players. It's interesting that you point out Alex Smith and Ben Roethlisberger because their their stat lines are very similar this week. They're 30 yards different. Um, their passing attempts are only three off and or I'm sorry, one off. 
And it's just the one touchdown difference between the two. And so Alex Smith, who we would consider a very inferior quarterback in a better matchup playing from behind, had nearly the same stats as Roethlisberger, but just he had one fewer touchdown. So we kind of see him a little worse this week. Um, whereas Roethlisberger had what for him probably isn't a great week, but still you're very happy if you started him. He got almost 300 yards, two touchdowns in a bad matchup on the road. I think that kind of speaks to your point that you should be playing your good quarterbacks even in the bad matchups. I don't I don't know that I would look at any defense this year and say I'm just not playing a quarterback against them. I think there's been holes in every defense in the league. Yeah, definitely. Another kind of quick example of this was the narrative that Drew Brees was going to bounce back in Week 9 because he was at home, right, um, mm-hmm. against the Rams. And, I mean, leading into that week, it was it was very possible and very likely that he would bounce back. But was it because he was at home and on turf? That, that just seems less important to me than the fact that he was playing against a defense that has banged up defensive backs. Because the game script was probably going to be up-tempo, I, I think that those are the types of things you should be looking at with a matchup, not just you know, a home road split or, uh, you know, the fact that a defense has only given up X number of fantasy points per week leading up to this game. So yeah, th- this is kind of a, a long-winded way of saying that, that matchups are worth looking at, but they're not the end-all be-all when it comes to uh, evaluating players and figuring out who to start week to week. Let's get to our awards for the week, Josh, and quarterback boom of the week. Uh, which guy outperformed your expectations the most in week nine? <laughs> the most is probably one that you're going to want to talk about. I know you and two QBs have been pretty focused on Nick Mullins. I think he's the incredibly easy answer because of how low our expectations were. We talked a little bit about Matt Ryan in that game. He was another one. But you know the one I would go with is Baker Mayfield. Mm-hmm. If we leave out Nick Mullins, because I think he's the easy answer, I, I'd add Baker Mayfield. I think that in the chaos that Cleveland has been going through of just the drama and the firings and a new system – and going up against Kansas City, in that's a good team. I mean, it's not a good defense, right? But I felt like the pressure could get to him. And he came through and had what was a remarkably good week, another almost 300-yard game, two touchdowns, really finally starting to use Duke Johnson. The offense looked like it was clicking. I was really impressed with Mayfield for a rookie that's gone through just a chaotic week, really put together a good game. So to me, he outperformed what I would have expected this week. Yeah, me too. Uh, That's a good answer. He didn't even make my list because, I mean, while the Kansas City defense is better than probably they're given credit for, they're not great. And and that was a spot where Mayfield probably should have done well. But you are right. Like leading into that game, I had some serious concerns about the shakeup in that organization and how ready he was going to be under a new coaching staff with only one week, really. And you're right. He he really showed out there. We do have to talk about Mullins. Uh, so uh, 20, <laughs> how could we not? Yeah, 22 plus points uh, against Oakland. Now Oakland stinks, so th- that's not really here or there. But this has to be a sell high moment if you have Nick Mullins and someone's willing to give you anything for him in a, a two QB or superflex, right? Like th- we can't expect <laughs> this to last, can we? I, what do you think his his trade market is? I'm yes, I'm with you. If you could get real value for him, absolutely, you should sell him. I. I wonder if people are buying in at this point. What, what's your sense? I mean, probably not because that, that's the way this works. Like everybody's always skeptical to a fault when it comes to fantasy football players, especially guys that they don't already own. Uh, now, with that said, it appears like he's a starting quarterback. I mean, they've already hinted that he's going to start on Monday Night Football. So I, I don't know, man. Like that's not a terrible matchup either. I think that's why it's a sell high moment is because you can point to the fact that he was really good last week. You can point to the fact that he has a relatively soft matchup coming up right now. And if somebody's hurting for a QB, either based on injuries or buys, then I think you might be able to get something for him. And I think if you can, and you have, you know, maybe extra quarterback depth, like maybe you just picked up Mullins as your QB four, because why the hell not? Then yeah, man, sell him off, get something, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially given that so many leagues are looking at a trade deadline this week or next week, depending on what your settings are. If you can get anything for him, go for it. Because otherwise, it's very unlikely that he's going to crack your starting roster for the rest of the year, and he may not even stay on your roster. Right. Uh, I will throw out a couple other names here for Boom of the Week. Ben Roethlisberger, just because it was against Baltimore and the expectations there were were pretty low. Like I had him ranked relatively low, uh, probably too low. Another guy I want to talk about and is the much maligned Nathan Peterman. Uh, he didn't do great. I mean, he only had about 12 fantasy points. He was the QB 17 pending Monday Night Football. 
but this is the first top 20 finish of his career. He outscored Joe Flacco, Trubisky, Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins, Matt Stafford, and Sam Darnold, and he did it against a good Bears defense, uh, proving yet again, as, as you alluded to, that defense doesn't matter, right? So, um, <laughs> And did it as the Konami code, right? Eight rushes for 46 yards and a touchdown? It wasn't his passing that led him there. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's 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 what does it. But at the very same time, I just want to give Peterman some credit because sure. we, we shit on him all the time. And <laughs> it's and, and I'm not me. I don't mean me, you and me specifically, Josh, but uh, the high the hive mind is, is just so down on Nathan Peterman. He's become a joke and he would, was definitely not the worst quarterback you could have played in week nine. So I want to give him a little bit of credit for, uh, you know, showing up in a really tough matchup. I think that 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 shows well for him. Okay, so let's move on now to the QB bust of the week. Who underperformed your expectations the most, Josh? Um, I'd go with Mitchell Trubisky here. I think that Trubisky is legitimately bad, but what a matchup. You come in and play Buffalo, and you if you knew in advance that, <laughs> that Chicago was going to put up 41 points, you don't expect that Trubisky is this bad. I mean, he just continues to underwhelm, and I know they were missing Allen Robinson, and I know that there are other ways that the team could score, but to barely complete 50% of his passes, to do nothing on the ground, I thought this was a place where if you're going to play Trubisky, this would be the opportunity. And he just came in and, I mean, he laid an egg. See, I kind of sniffed this one out, if only because you could look at this matchup and see how bad the Bills are. And I just said I don't want to crap on Nathan Peterman, but here I am crapping on Nathan Peterman again. He... He's not a good quarterback, and I could forecast a game in which Buffalo just isn't able to do much against that defense, and that would necessitate, or not necessitate, but that would lead to Mitchell Trubisky not having to do much. And so I think I wrote that up in my A to Z uh, article last week. I was kind of down on Trubisky for that reason, and high on Jordan Howard, which ended up working out to some extent. Howard didn't have a ton of yards, but he scored a couple touchdowns. I, I don't think this was a great spot for Trubisky just based on the opponent and the likely matchup this is something where not that defense matters but matchup matters right like the script of that game was one where you could have forecast Trubisky not needing to do much does that make sense yeah and I think that's a a fair point I I will agree with you but also clarify that I don't think that he should be hovering around a 50 percent completion rate in this matchup I hear your point, but I think he ought to be able to find some receivers. He ought to break 150 yards, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's disappointing that against such a soft defense, he's not even able to put up efficient numbers. But I think your your point is right. This was a forecastable, and in your case, actually forecast, low-scoring performance. Now, with that said, this is a, a point of data that tells us that Trubisky probably just isn't that good, right? Yeah, it I was really stunned by the love for him this offseason, and I just continue to be amazed that there are still some people to ex- that expect good things from him. I just I don't think he's a good quarterback. Yep, I'm with you. Uh, for me, the most disappointing or, or most or biggest underperformance was Kirk Cousins at home against Detroit. He finishes the QB 21, uh, and again, that's pending Monday Night Football, so he could fall as low as QB 23 uh, by the time Mariota and Prescott are done. Didn't even crack seven fantasy points. I get that Stephon Diggs didn't play, and there are some lingering offensive line problems there for the Vikings. And Dalvin Cook returned, which I guess also kind of impacts Cousins' need to throw the ball. But, I I mean, maybe this is just the same thing as Trubisky. Maybe we could have sniffed this out if we knew that Detroit was bad. But like you kind of hinted at at the beginning of the episode, Detroit was one of those teams we weren't really sure on entering Week 9. And so I just had higher expectations for Cousins. He didn't really get there. Yeah, and... He's one of those where I don't see a scenario where you would have wanted to bench him, right? Like in terms of rankings, I think you're right. I I didn't sniff it out. I would have thought he would have been ranked high. But even still, he's one of those guys where I feel like you're starting him every week and you're just disappointed in this matchup, right? Like it, he's not going on a list where you're considering benching him, right? No, I don't. Yeah, exactly. I think you kind of have to start him if you have him, mostly because you probably don't have better options, right? If you have Cousins on your roster, that means you probably paid, what, a third to fifth round pick for him in a two-quarterback league? And, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just don't think you can get away from somebody like that, especially when the matchup appears to be solid against Detroit, right? Yeah, which makes it more crushing, right? Like, knowing you have to start him versus a Trubisky, where if you do sniff it out, you can say, all right, you're sitting on the bench. How often are you... <laughs> I guess going contrary to that kind of, oh, I have to start this guy feeling. Uh, we kind of talked about Matt Ryan and Ben Roethlisberger and potentially bad matchups. 
week to week when you're setting your lineups, how often do you find yourself going with, I guess, the, the higher variance play or the guy who you might not have invested as much capital in, but for just like you like the matchup and, and you think that it's it's correct to start him? Like, do you do that very often? I think it depends. I In a league where, in a two-quarterback league where I've had Eli Manning as my second quarterback, I have. I, I've picked up Baker Mayfield and I played him. Um, this week I started him. I can't remember. I'm blanking now on who it was that I started two weeks ago. But when you're looking at really bad quarterback, I mean, he has the name recognition. He has the MVPs, the Super Bowls. Eli Manning theoretically ought to be a QB2 starter. He's one where I'm like, look, I'll just take the the, the high variance bench or uh, waiver quarterback there. But in other leagues where I'm looking at, like I mentioned in Scott Fishbowl with Brady and Luck, I have Flacco on the bench, and there's never been a point where I thought about starting Flacco over this other two, right? Regardless of matchup, I'm just not playing Joe Flacco over the big names. Yeah, Flacco's just pure bench depth for you. You'll use him in bye weeks, and that's it, right? Yeah, so just I guess it depends on what my my roster construction looks like. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to talk, as we alluded to earlier, about Washington, and specifically about these O-line injuries that they suffered on Sunday. And I'm curious what you think about Alex Smith and his trade value because Smith hasn't been great, but he is a, again, he's a starter. He's a solid player. We know what he's capable of. We saw the ceiling last year and every other year we've seen the floor and it's episode 100. So we have to talk about Alex Smith. Uh, Do you think two quarterback league players should be taking whatever they can get for him in trade at this point? Because I feel like you can use this looming matchup against Tampa Bay as leverage to move Smith because I think people always like to know that the player they're going to trade for is going to go right into their starting lineup. And I think we're getting to that point in the season where now that QB buys are starting to clear up, you can start to risk trading away quarterback depth if you have you know guys who have already had their buys. I would be absolutely moving Alex Smith at this point. And this is one place where I think that you have a strength in trading is talking to player, talking to other owners about what just happened, what the upcoming matchups are, and that's what I'd be playing off of is, look, he just came off 300 yards. He's got Tampa Bay coming up. There's reasons for optimism. That's kind of the thing you'd be selling, but I'd absolutely be selling for various reasons. I mentioned earlier that this is he's just not a very functional quarterback. I mean, nine touchdowns in eight games. He has one on the ground, too, but he's averaging just barely one touchdown per game, averaging just over 200 passing yards per game. And now they just sent both of their starting guards to the injured reserve. And Trent Williams, their excellent left tackle, has already been out for a few weeks. This could just become a dumpster fire for Alex Smith. It could be a whole lot of handoffs. It could be an offense that really just moves the ball even less than they already were. And so he, I think that's a great call by you, that if you can sell him off of the Atlanta game and the upcoming Tampa game, I would absolutely be looking to do that. Yeah, watching that game, it seemed like he really missed Chris Thompson. And their weapons leave a lot to be desired at this point anyway, but just having a functional pass catcher out of the backfield when you have so many problems up front is is super critical. And that's my biggest concern is that he doesn't have the right type of weapons for a functional offense when the offensive line is experiencing the types of problems that it is. Do you have any other buy or sell recommendations based upon this, like sell Adrian Peterson or just move off the entire offense? Because it does seem like everything starts up front with offense these days in the trenches. And if Washington is going to struggle in that aspect of the game, I feel like this might be a team you just might want to get away from completely. I think that's probably right with the possible exception of Chris Thompson, who, depending on your league, may have even hit waivers and free agency at this point, just because he's been out for a few weeks and not really getting any buzz. If the offense is going to be bad and there's going to be a porous line, it may be more screens, more dump-offs, things like that, and Thompson already excels at that. We know Alex Smith loves to check down. There's probably nothing he prefers more in life. Um, so Thompson might be the only one that I'd be looking at adding, but otherwise, yeah, I think I would be moving off of this whole offense. So looking ahead and we'll get to the week 10 preview here in a minute, but I'm thinking long, long term with the Washington franchise, how much of a priority should quarterback be for them this off season? Because they signed Smith to a big deal. That's, it's not going to look great if they go out and draft a QB, but is that something you feel like they need to do sooner rather than later? Sooner rather than later, but 
early buzz doesn't look like this would be the year they would do it. Um, Alex Smith is pretty well locked. I mean, he's locked in for two years this year and next year, really probably locked in the year after that um, because they're still going to have a $20 million dead cap hit if they cut him two seasons down the road. I mean, they're pretty well locked into Alex Smith, and this doesn't look to be the draft of young quarterbacks. There's maybe one that looks really top tier and may go in the top five or ten picks. I mean, there's, we're a long way out, right? Things can change. Mm-hmm. But there doesn't seem to be this crop of quarterbacks in this draft. And the Redskins have five wins already. They're competing in the division. They're really not going to be in a good position to move up and take a quarterback, even if there were one. I think probably what they're going to do is be stuck next year still with Smith and then be looking down the road a year or two from now. I mean, who knows? It, we're, we're nine weeks into the season. We'll have the whole rest of this season. We'll have the whole offseason to look at the prospects, the, the rookies that will be incoming. But I would be kind of surprised if they go any direction other than Alex Smith next year. But, yeah, down the road, I think you're right. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. Um, last thing I want to touch on kind of tangentially to what we mentioned with potentially trading away quarterback depth is this idea of handcuffing quarterbacks. In a two-quarterback format, that can make some sense, right? If you have uh, Drew Brees, maybe it is a good idea to go get Teddy Bridgewater at some point, if you have the bench depth to do so. What is your philosophy on handcuffing QBs in a two-quarterback format? Are you doing that at this time of year? Are you maybe trying to snipe the handcuffs of other teams? Um, What's your philosophy on this? I don't tend to handcuff quarterbacks very often. I think it might be a good idea. I tend to go for, rather than handcuffs, if you're looking at bench quarterbacks, I just look for the best bench quarterback in the best situation. So I think the Teddy Bridgewater example is a great one, but not necessarily just as a handcuff. But you look at what's a good offense with a quarterback that we have some optimism for. And if Breeze went down, there's a possibility that Bridgewater could come out and be a pretty decent fantasy quarterback. And so I think that would be a good target, whether or not I had Drew Brees on my team. I don't tend to do a lot of, like, go get my backup. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm not either. And if anything, what I tend to do is look for the quarterbacks in the shakiest situations and try to pick up their backups. Like, I agree that Bridgewater is probably a safe bet. Like, if he were to get in there and become the starter due to some Brees injury he'd be a pretty good bet to succeed. The problem is is that the chances of him getting in there are so low. Like, he's not going to take over because of poor play from Drew Brees, because <laughs> Drew Brees is really friggin' good. Uh, and also, the Saints have a great offensive line, so Brees getting hurt is probably a, a low probability. I'm going to knock on wood furiously as I say <laughs> this. You're, you're going to hear this through the microphone. So what I'd rather do is look at the quarterbacks who are more likely to lose their job either because of injury or because of poor play. And so I think Cody Kessler in Jacksonville uh, fits the bill. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick really fit the bill uh, Mm -hmm. until he that actually happened. You know, he got he he took over for Jameis when Jameis was benched. Although I think you could even look at that the other way. Like, look at how many interceptions Fitzpatrick threw in week nine. It's possible that they go back to Winston. I know there's some incentive Mm -hmm. for them not to do that based upon his contract being guaranteed uh, unless he's injured or only if he's injured, but I don't know. If, if Fitzpatrick continues to struggle, they might go back to Winston again. Who knows? And those are the types of quarterbacks that I would be looking to, or I guess bench-type quarterbacks who I'd be looking to pick up. Yeah, that's a great one. I think Josh McCown is another option. I don't think they're going to bench Sam Darnold. He just had a dreadful week. He's the rookie. He's the future. But if somebody goes down, that's someone that we've seen prove he can be a fantasy starter. And it is a shaky enough team situation that's another guy i would be looking at yep good call let's get into week 10 uh we'll start as we always do with the streamer of the week who's the quarterback uh from like the low end qb2 or maybe a qb3 type who owners wouldn't always start but this week you're looking at and saying yeah i like i like this spot i like where he's at i kind of have a few so maybe i'll just only go with one at this point and we can kind of bounce it back and forth so i don't take all of them but I absolutely would be looking at Baker Mayfield again. Mm-hmm. I am very, I mean, we talked about him earlier, but he's going to be playing now at home versus Atlanta. And I think this is another place where I absolutely would be considering him as a possible starter here, even if I'm not sold that I'll be starting him every week from here on out. It looks like a good matchup. It looks like the offense found some ways that it can do things. 
and I'm interested to see what he can do now with a couple of weeks in this new system. Yeah, Mayfield was the clear top choice. I, I have a long list as well. I think I have eight guys written down here, nine, nine potential guys we could talk about. Uh, but Mayfield was the guy I, you know, bolded and underlined. I think that this matchup is just really ideal, not only just because the Falcons' defense is bad, but because where the Falcons' defense struggles is where the Browns are pretty well suited to attack them, right? Like they have a lot of trouble covering running backs out of the backfield. Hello, Duke Johnson. Uh, their, their interior defense struggles. Like we saw what Vernon Davis did against them and Jordan Reed did against them last week. Hello, David and Joku. Like these are, I mean, even Jarvis Landry is a, a player who operates really well in the middle of the field in those short to intermediate areas. So I think that matches up well with Mayfield and what that offense is trying to do. Um, so yeah, easy call there. If Mayfield is healthy, I want to throw out Alex Smith at Tampa Bay as another potential one here. I mean, this is, we, we talked about this as a sell high moment for Smith, but if you want to keep him, if you have to keep him because you need a QB, there's no better matchup than the Buccaneers, right? Over 25 fantasy points per game allowed. The average weekly finish against the Bucks is QB 7.8. Uh, six of the eight games they've played have resulted in a top 10 finish for the opposing quarterback. Every game they've allowed a top 20 finish to the opposing quarterback. Uh, the O-line problems are a concern for Smith, but I just don't know if it matters in this matchup. What do you think about Smith? <laughs> yeah, that's some pretty damning numbers when you put it that way for Tampa Bay. I think you're right, despite all of the negatives that we just threw out there. And I think this is also Tampa Bay is an offense that we know, even if they hit a brick wall, they're going to keep going and keep throwing. So there's a decent chance that this is a higher scoring game uh, than the Redskins typically play in. So I'm going to throw out a few other names here, and you tell me if, I guess, just tell me which one you like the most, uh, and we can talk about that player. So Marcus Mariota, uh, home against New England, uh, Dak Prescott on the road at Philly, Blake Bortles on the road at Indy, Brock Osweiler on the road at Green Bay, Eli Manning at San Francisco, Nick Mullins at home on the other side of that matchup against the Giants. Uh, which one of those guys do you like the most? I think that I probably would be going... I'm torn. The two that I'm bouncing back and forth here are Blake Portals and Eli Manning. And I don't like either of those options, but I think that both matchups are pretty favorable. Um, the others that you mentioned scare me. I think that Marcus Mariota playing New England could end up very poorly. And granted, we're recording this as Marcus Mariota is playing the Cowboys right now. And so I don't have the extra data point of how they're doing. Um, but I think that the Patriots excel at confusing and Mariota's awareness has just seemed to drop off a cliff over the last year, year and a half. And so I'd be worried that he will not look good against the Patriots. Um, I'm just, I don't believe in Nick Mullins at all. I would have a really hard time going that route. And so I'm kind of defaulting back to guys that we've seen succeed before in good matchups and Blake Bortles. I know he's on the road. I know he's been terrible, but Indianapolis playing potentially to still compete in this division i could see this being a high scoring explosive game and bortles has some weapons yep i think for me it would come down to bortles or dak prescott uh, indianapolis has been decent against quarterbacks uh, average weekly finish again against them is qb 15.4 uh, only five of their eight games have resulted in a top 20 finish for the opposing qb but as bad as Bortles is, we know that there's a decent ceiling in any given week with him. And that's kind of the case with every quarterback, but Bortles tends to be the king of those blow-up weeks out of nowhere. And you're, this matchup is good enough that, that I think he's a good call. I'm very interested in Prescott. He looked okay in the beginning of that Monday night game that's happening right now. Um, before we started recording, from what I saw, he did throw a pretty egregious interception in the end zone, which was uh, not pretty, but uh, I think that because he rushes the ball... Because it'll be the second week with Amari Cooper there, I, I don't know how much that matters, but I think it helps. Uh, Philly is definitely very beatable through the air. That's the way to attack them. Um, but this is all kind of contingent, like you said, on how he's going to perform in this Monday night game. Same as Mariota. And I will admit that the Eagles coming off their bye against Dak is a little scary. But because of the Konami code, because the Eagles have struggled to defend the pass, I think that Prescott's a guy you can look at as well. I think it'd come down to Bortles or Prescott for me. Yeah, and the Prescott is probably one I should give more consideration to. And honestly, just looking through his stats now, I hadn't realized just how high his rushing average has been on a game-by-game -game basis. And the addition of Amari Cooper, certainly early returns, like you said, we didn't get to see much of the first half. But 
looks like it is adding a dimension to the offense that they've really lacked this year. And so if they could start moving the ball two ways rather than just rushing Zeke every play, um, this could be an offense that we've really been underselling and might be a place to target. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Now, you kind of panned Nick Mullins uh, at home against the Giants, and the Giants admittedly have a much better defense than the Oakland team that Mullins just faced in Week 9. Uh, I'm curious how much a game's worth of tape on a quarterback like Mullins is going to be worth to the opposing defense, but I kind of want to pivot, or I want to pit him against Brock Osweiler for you in Week 10. Osweiler going on the road against Green Bay, and the Packers just suffered a lot of injuries on defense in Week 9. Do you think there's something there for Osweiler, maybe? Um, they're actually a team, we, we talked about pace earlier, the Dolphins' pace has been not great for fantasy, so that's kind of a, a, a strike against him, but if it came down to Osweiler or Mullins, if you were really you know in the weeds at your quarterback position, which one of those two guys would you rather play? That is really in the weeds. I would look at it a little more, but I think that I would likely consider Mullins. I do think that although we saw Osweiler the first week he stepped in look good, I think that the unknown of Mullins and the matchup being at home, there is more upside that I would see there. And so I think I would take that higher variance. But it's it's tough. I would need to look at it closer. What about you? Yeah, I think I would go Mullins as well, but that might just be the Niners homer in me. I, I honestly can't tell at this point. Like, it's still too new and too fresh for me. Uh, but at the same time, I do believe in Kyle Shanahan uh, more so. And not to say that Adam Gase is a bad offensive coach, but I believe that what Kyle Shanahan wants to do on offense is better for fantasy than what Adam Gase wants to do on offense uh, with his play calling and his schemes. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, it does. Yep. Uh, let's get to our clipboard holder of the week. And this is the QB who you would normally start, but you're going to avoid in week 10. Who are you looking at, Josh? You know, I drew a blank looking at this, which I will kind of try to segue my ignorance into a broader discussion of, to me, and correct me if you feel differently, I feel like the line between clear starters and terrible quarterbacks seems sharper this year than it has in recent years. I feel like there is a very clear tier of bad quarterbacks that are starting this year. And there's always bad quarterbacks, but there seems to be a tier that just doesn't come out of that low tier very often this year. But I haven't dug into the stats nearly as often as you. And I will circle back to your question. When I look at it, I don't see someone that I would typically consider a starter that I would just automatically discount this week. It was very hard for me to find an answer to this question. No, me too. And this is, I actually like when this happens for the show because sometimes the answer is there's nobody. Just start the obvious guys, you know? Um, but I will throw a few names at you here. And the first is actually going to be my pick. And this might seem counterintuitive, but Andy Dalton uh, at home against New Orleans. Now, New Orleans has been a pretty good matchup for quarterbacks. They've allowed the second most points per game to the position, uh, over 25 points per game. Average weekly finish against them is QB 10.8. Half the games against them have been top 10 finishes. Uh, Five of eight have been top 20. So that there tells you a little bit. It's A few quarterbacks have been able to really go off against the Saints defense, but three of the eight QBs they faced have not even finished inside the top 20. So there is maybe some reason to believe the New Orleans defense is, is turning around. Dalton specifically worries me because I think the Cincinnati offense was already a little overrated since losing Tyler Eifert and John Ross, and now A.J. Green has a toe injury. He's likely to miss Week 10, and I just don't think that that's going to spell good news for Andy Dalton in this particular matchup. I think that the Bengals should maybe still be able to move the ball, but I think it would be a lot more on the back of Joe Mixon. Uh, but with that said, the Saints' rushing defense has actually been really good. I think they're they're one of the top 10 defenses in DVOA against running backs, but in general, this is a spot mostly because of the injury to A.J. Green, where I think Andy Dalton is a player that, despite a good-looking matchup, is a player you might want to avoid if you have some other options. Yeah, that's a good call. And the loss of A.J. Green, uh, to me, this is going to be one of the most interesting games to watch because the Bengals are on that threshold I was talking about earlier where I think they might be a pretender that is about to more clearly look that way as they struggle through the loss of one of their only elite player for a few weeks. But it's also possible that New Orleans is coming off the game of the year, as some build it, and is going to have somewhat of a letdown on the road coming into an easier matchup. 
and maybe let some things through. It's also easy to sell yourself on a narrative of New Orleans is going to score points, and so Andy Dalton is going to have the garbage time, just keep throwing, and he'll eventually find Tyler Boyd or C.J. Uzoma or however you pronounce that last name, and will find ways to score points, even if it's kind of ugly, even if he throws a pick or two. It'd be tough for me to sit him, but I also am with you. I think that's a good call that he may really struggle this week. And it's all going to be roster dependent. Like I said, I don't know if I would bench him on every team, but you know, if I'm looking at Andy Dalton versus Mitchell Trubisky, uh, who I could very reasonably have both in a two quarterback league, I'm probably still starting Dalton. But if I have Andy Dalton and Alex Smith, maybe I look at Alex Smith because he's playing the Bucks. Even and I'm, I probably would have drafted Dalton ahead of Smith this past uh, draft season. So, with that said, I want to talk about what you mentioned with that potential letdown factor for the Saints and flip this to the other side of the the ball, Andrew Brees, on the road. We're talking about road home splits earlier being a narrative that surrounds Drew Brees, that he's only good in the Dome, he's only good at home. On the road in Cincy, cold weather, do we care? I mean, Cincinnati's defense has been pretty favorable for quarterbacks as well. They've allowed the fourth most points per game. Average weekly finish against the Bengals is QB 10. So this is normally like you just look at the numbers and you think, oh, I want to start Drew Brees. And you look at the name Drew Brees and you think, oh yeah, Drew Brees is great. I want to start him. Is there any way you could be convinced to to avoid him this week uh, based on that kind of trap game narrative that you threw out? Not in any sort of redraft format. I, I think in DFS, you might not treat him as quite such an elite option as maybe you otherwise would. But even still, like you said, Cincinnati has become more and more favorable of a matchup as things have gone on. Um, and I'm not anywhere near a DFS expert. I hardly play at all. But I can't see any world in a two-quarterback league, normal redraft league, where you're doing anything with Drew Brees other than just clicking the same submit button that you've done every week this year. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you just kind of have to run him out there. That offense is too good, and he's too good a player to really get too worried about matchups or being on the road or anything like that. I mean, every player is going to have some clunkers now and then, but I just play the percentages play play those numbers of the matchup numbers the the numbers that breeze puts up on the regular uh, on average and and that's generally what's going to give you the higher ev i think um i'm going to throw out three other names and you tell me i guess if any of these guys scare you uh andrew luck at home against jacksonville russell wilson on the road at the rams and carson wentz at home against dallas are you worried about any of those three not to the point of benching them no i think Jacksonville has seemed weaker. Indianapolis is going to keep throwing. Andrew Luck has found a way to score. Um, If anything, I'd be a little concerned about Russell Wilson on the road at Los Angeles, but even still, he just powered through a tougher game against Los Angeles and still had a pretty decent fantasy week. Um, And I don't find that Dallas is that, that dominant of a defense that I'd be worried. Carson Wentz has really looked quite good since coming back from the injury. And obviously, like you were talking about earlier, with scheme, that's a scheme that finds ways to win on a weekly basis, and it seems to funnel through Wentz quite often. So, no, I don't see a world in which I'm benching any of those unless I have a very above-average bench player. Yeah, I I am totally with you on Wentz. I would go the other way and just start him with confidence. I think that he Mm -hmm. looks like he's, quote-unquote, back. And while the Dallas defense has been solid, I'm... Not convinced they're you know elite by any means, uh, and this trade that Philly just made for Golden Tate tells me that they want to keep throwing the ball. They're not really looking to turtle up and run and, and play that ball control style of offense. They want to keep pushing the pace and keep on out scheming teams, as you noted. So I'm not worried about him. Um, Luck probably has the worst you know matchup on paper. Like you look at what the Jags have allowed, uh, the third fewest fantasy points per game to quarterbacks, uh, 15.4. Uh, average weekly finish against them is QB 17.8. Uh, only half the games against the Jags have resulted in top 20 finishes. But, you know, Luck is the type of player, and he plays in the type of high-volume offense or high-volume passing offense that he could very well finish in that, you know, 50% of guys to to go top 20 against this defense. I think that's kind of a, a foregone conclusion. I'm with you that Wilson is probably the one to worry about the most. And it comes back to those volume concerns and that pace concern that I brought up earlier where the Seahawks don't really seem keen on running a whole lot of pass plays. Now, with that said, it does seem like they are running the ball aggressively and at a high volume 
to set up the pass when they get closer to the red zone. It's it's not always right at the red zone. Like I, I think they have a an inordinate number of long touchdown passes this season, but. I think that that is set up by the run game to some extent. Like they're going to do a lot off play action, a lot of moving Russell Wilson around, and that is what leads to him still putting up serviceable fantasy numbers despite the low passing volume, if that makes sense. I think that absolutely makes sense. And Russell Wilson has proven for many years that people will doubt him and he will find a way um, for fantasy and to a lesser degree, real NFL success as well. But the offense does seem to just run through him, and he seems to find a way to score points on every week. Yep. Um, so I'm officially saying that Andy Dalton is my clipboard holder of the week. Do you want to join me on that, Josh, or do you want to pick anybody else? I, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, no, I think I I am convinced listening to you. I'm interested to see, but I think you're right that he would be the closest I would come to, to naming a clipboard holder. So let's say yes. What else are you looking forward to on the Week 10 slate? Without getting back into it too much, Cleveland and Atlanta is probably the most interesting game to me on the slate, which I would not have expected I would be saying a few weeks ago. (laughs) But just that to me is Atlanta is a very fascinating team to watch. I I love seeing what they're doing. They lost Devontae Freeman and they just plugged Ido Smith in and he seems incredibly talented. They're using Calvin Ridley to great success. Um, Austin Hooper is all of a sudden a legitimate asset. And that's just a fun team to watch as they move through all these different weapons. Um, and then obviously Cleveland, for the reasons we talked about earlier, that to me is probably the most fascinating game on the slate, even if it doesn't turn into the best football matchup. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. I'm also excited that we have a relatively good matchup on Thursday Night Football. That rarely happens, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, the Steelers and the Panthers, both those teams are just playing really well right now. And I'm curious to see how that matchup goes because... Both of those quarterbacks in particular have a penchant for not showing up on occasion or, or just having like really big-time dud performances. Who do you think is going to get the better of that matchup, Josh? I also would echo that this is just a, a fun game. It's great that we have a Thursday night game that's worth watching. I know you're a 49ers fan, but last week I didn't even turn the game on. I read about Nick Mullins after the fact. It was such a bad matchup. Um, but this... I would lean towards saying Carolina. I'm more and more convinced that they are legitimate on both sides of the ball. And I think they're finally finding ways to use all their different offensive weapons well. But it's so hard to say that they're going to go on the road and beat the Steelers. I would lean Carolina. I haven't looked at what the line is, but I would say Carolina is a very slight favorite in my mind. Yeah, I was tweeting a couple weeks ago with another 2QBs.com alum, Anthony Amico, about that Carolina offense. And we, we were kind of getting excited about Curtis Samuel because Curtis Samuel is a player that Anthony was really high on in the draft process. He kind of convinced me, like he came on this show and talked about it way back when, before Samuel got drafted. And we were kind of talking about, or I think I threw out the, the word or the phrase shell game, you know, like a three card Monty where you hide a ball under a cup and then you swivel around a bunch of cups and how that's essentially what the Panthers should be doing with, Curtis Samuel, DJ Moore, Christian McCaffrey, and letting, you know, kind of Greg Olson and Devin Funches be the, like the, the deeper threats, the, I guess the more possession targets, but just moving around those other speedsters in like a way that was more creative and more misdirection oriented. And lo and behold, did you see that crazy double reverse by Curtis Samuel in that game uh, in week nine? Cause that was, that was perfect. That was exactly what I wanted. I have not seen the clip, but I watched Twitter's reaction, so I feel like it was almost there. But it is good that they're finding ways to make these players excel. Yep. A couple more things I'm looking forward to. I'll just get through these briefly. Um, Hashtag Monday Night Mullins Mania. I'm I'm still in. Like I said, just Niners Homer and me can't help it. Uh, Another game I'm looking forward to is that Indianapolis-Jacksonville matchup. And not because I think it's going to be a great game, but mostly because I just want to see how luck looks against that defense. And I, th- I think it's interesting that both of them are coming off buys. They've had a lot of time to prep for each other. And so I'm curious to see who wins that battle. Yeah, the Mullins mania, I, I'm i just sick of watching the NFC East. And my, my team is in the NFC East, but Dallas is playing right now on Monday night. They're playing again on Sunday night. The Giants are in next week's Monday night. Like, can we just get this terrible division off tv (laughs) i think that's just my cynicism but i am very interested to see what mullins looks like and luck against the jacksonville defense is a great one that was probably my runner up for the game i'd be most interested in and that's another division that is 
low win totals, not great teams, but Jacksonville and Indianapolis are not out of the playoff hunt for that reason, right? Like Mm -hmm. either one of them, you could tell yourself the story. I mean, Indianapolis has started to turn the corner on defense as well. And both of those two teams, if they got things rolling, this is a division that you could quite easily win. I know the Texans have been on a tear, but they're far from unbeatable. Right, and that's and these division games are so important for tiebreaker purposes too. So that yeah, super super interesting to watch that particular division down the stretch, just because it has been kind of a trash heap for the most part, and and all these teams are so close. Uh, give me a bold prediction for week ten, Josh. A bold prediction. My bold prediction is that Tampa Bay surprises Washington and pulls off the upset there. That. Washington really does collapse and that we see that offensive line problem we were talking about really come to fruition and they score 14 points or less against a great defense or sorry a great defensive matchup it looks good for Washington they should excel they don't I'm sorry don't be sorry it's okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate the forgiveness. I just mumbled. Um, my bold prediction, I'm just going to roll up the, the Andy Dalton clipboard holder thing. I'm going to say that Dalton finishes outside the top 15 quarterbacks in what looks like a good matchup. I got kind of a weird wind-down segment here. We usually just cut straight from the bold predictions to the end of the show, Josh, but it's episode 100. I want to do a little bit extra, and I want to put on my game design hat, and a little bit later I want to put on my tinfoil hat, um, and I want to talk to you about changing football and we hear a lot this season about how the rule changes have proliferated offense and that makes a lot of sense another thing that we hear a lot is kind of people bemoaning kickers and bemoaning field goals and all these uh you know those misses that we've been seeing uh in games and i'm curious what would it take do you think to remove field goals from nfl play do you think it would make the game better if we did that i was interested by this question I think it's very unlikely that the NFL would do it as a rule, but I think that it's more plausible that teams stop kicking field goals. Like as a strategic matter, they say, you know what, if we're close enough that we can kick a field goal, let's start going for it more often. And that might not fully remove them, but I could see a world where we just NFL teams stop kicking so many field goals and start going for it on fourth down much more often when they're in the opponent's territory I think that would make the game better. Let's get some more points. Let's take some more risks. Let's move the ball a little more. I don't know that the NFL wants to get rid of them. I think the NFL, I could see them getting rid of kickoffs far earlier than they would get rid of field goals just because of the focus on safety with field goals. I don't think that they want to fully do away with special teams. And that's such a significant impact of special teams coaching and players that are on the roster for those long snaps and the kicker position. I mean, if you do away with field goals, the punter is going to start doing kickoffs and you just removed a position from the league. I, I don't see that happening, but I think it could be a better world if teams just decide to stop kicking so many field goals. Yeah. I just think it would be fascinating if on every fourth down, your options would either be to go forward or punt. And that's it. If those were the only two things you could do, I think that it would create a little bit more, fun on the margins of the games. I think it would result in more fake punts too, which is kind of exciting. But I the the real reason I don't think you could get rid of them easily, get rid of field goals easily, is that you still need ways to score variable amounts of points, right? Like three versus six, three versus seven, three versus eight. Because that's what makes, you know, the game interesting when it comes down to uh you know, those types of decisions you have to make. It's right, it's like I can go for this because the payoff is six points, um, or I can settle for three. So I think if if for some reason the NFL were to decide, yep, we're passing a rule, there's no more field goals, I think you would have to shift the value of a touchdown maybe. Like you'd probably have to make mm-hmm. a touchdown worth five, and then you'd have to have multiple different types of conversions. So like maybe you have like a short conversion attempt from the one line, one yard line that's worth two. So that's how you would score seven points. And you would have like a longer conversion attempt from maybe the two or the three yard line that would be worth three. And you'd have to decide each time you score a touchdown what type of conversion you're going to go for. Is that a better game? I, it's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, there is some value, I guess, to kicking. Uh, I, I think that the point you raise about eliminating a position altogether is a valid one. Like the players union probably wouldn't like it. Uh, even Even though we're talking about kickers, I think that they would be upset if, you know, all these people who like these 32 guys who had jobs suddenly didn't. Um, I think that might be a problem, but I I don't know. I want to talk a little bit more about how the league would go about this. You know, if they were 
Because because I agree with you in terms of just the aesthetics of the game, it would be good if just teams decided they were going to start going for it more on fourth down. And this is where the tinfoil hat comes into play because the NFL kind of began this process when they started moving the point after touchdown back. There was some mayhem with that, right? We saw more missed PATs and maybe then the league would start doctoring the balls that are used on field goals perhaps when you might see mason crosby <laughs> go one for seven or you might see justin tucker miss an extra point i think uh mayor the uh the cowboys kicker missed uh, a, a field goal in today's game uh, before we started recording so do you think uh my conspiracy theory holds any weight here josh <laughs> that maybe the league is invested in trying to convince teams to go for it more often on first down or on fourth down that's a, I haven't considered it before literally this minute, but I would not put it past them. The NFL knows what they're doing with creating drama and moving the league towards more interesting, more entertaining games. I don't think it's true, but there's <laughs> there's this shred of plausibility there. I like it. That's right. Yeah, shred of plausibility. That, that should be my slogan here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if, if as kickers just keep failing on these, these field goal tries, these point after touchdown attempts, I feel like it's happening more and more often. I think that that's when you'll see fans start to get more and more sick of the kicking game, which would soften the blow if the league ultimately decided that they wanted to get rid of them. What about reducing field goal? Cut it from three to two points, right? Like slowly devalue it that way as well. Yeah, I mean, that's another good way to do it. That would be a little bit more overt and a little less underhanded than my fun conspiracy (laughs) theory, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how they could improve the game. And would it improve the game, right? Are we convinced that getting rid of field goals or reducing them would be a better game i'd have to think about it more yeah and the other thing you'd be swimming upstream against here is just nostalgia uh you know the football purists right you know kicking's always been a part of the game kicking has to stay in the game it's called football it's the one part of the game where the foot is involved you know like touching the ball i I think it would be hard to do that way but if you could legislate it in some other sneaky ways like you said maybe change the value of a field goal uh I don't know. Um, I, I think there's something there. And just, again, like the way we've been seeing so many missed kicks, that shred of plausibility, man, like who knows? Maybe that like after Deflategate, uh, we could see them messing with the kicking balls. It, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. I have one other, and this just kind of came to my mind over the weekend, and I'm going to ask you about it because I thought, you know, this might be a good idea. You know how at the end of the game when teams are – out of timeouts but chasing points they will often have to line up and spike the ball right do you think that it would be okay to give each team like one free spike essentially a timeout where you lose a down so basically it would be your fourth timeout you can only use it if you're out of timeouts and when you use it you you lose a down do you think that would improve the product on the field so essentially it would save the seconds of running down and getting set right that's the theory behind it exactly and my issue with that is that you're really contingent on the refs and you're kind of contingent on the defensive players like especially the guys who are caught behind the line of scrimmage like catching back up and getting on the the right side of the line like that sort of stuff bugs me i feel like we lose a lot of time based upon the refs and based upon defensive players lollygagging a little bit i I think Mm -hmm. giving coaches one more like instant clock stoppage would be kind of cool yeah i think it's a good idea and i'm sure that internally the nfl one of the tensions they deal with is wanting some regularity and consistency and like you talked about you don't want to be just a slow defensive player or a slow offensive lineman that swings the game they like that consistency but I think they also kind of like the chaos, right? Like, sure. we could be more accurately measuring things in the game. We could be making it more precise. We could, but I think they kind of like that if something goes wrong and it's really a terrible result that everyone's in an uproar about for a week, I think they kind of like that attention too. Yeah, no, I could definitely see it. And, and that does make sense. Uh, I mean, it does increase the drama a little bit and... I mean, that's that's what sells, right? So it's a tension. I, th- I think your idea is a good one, but I think it's something they always debate, is do we want to decrease drama to increase predictability and, I don't know, what's the word? Like, legitimacy of victories. Yeah. I guess I just, I see those situations in games, and I think it's always more exciting if the team that's behind has 
just a slightly better chance to actually pull it off. You know what I mean? Because these sorts mm-hmm. of situations, like the, those teams are already pretty far behind because they don't have any timeouts. I, I don't know. I think it would be kind of cool. And, and there would introduce some extra strategy in terms of, you know, how often it would actually be worth doing that. Like, I guess if you're going to spike it anyway, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't matter. But or what I'm curious about more is how often teams n- wouldn't necessarily spike line up to spike it but if they could do it instantaneously and lose it down how often would they choose to do that right because sometimes you have time to line up and get set and spike it but like maybe you would still choose to run a play because that's uh, Mm -hmm. something i feel like we've seen a lot more in recent years is where teams used to spike it they would say why even waste that extra second why not if we're gonna line up and get set let's just run a play but again those three to five seconds or whatever that you spend lining up like if you could get those back would it be worth it to spike it in those situations i'm not sure i'd be be curious to see and it would affect the step before it would affect the play calling because how often have we watched the end of the game and everyone watching the game to say nothing of the players and the coaches knows it's got to be a pass to the sideline and if you could open up the whole field and just give offenses more options it kind of fits with your point of giving that team that is down a little bit better chance just because there's more routes they can run there's more options it keeps the defense more honest yeah and i guess probably the biggest argument against making that sort of change would be the defensive side of the ball right because there would be no equivalent for a defense right Hmm. so i don't know interesting i I was thinking about that the other day because i can't remember who was trailing and who had to spike the ball but i i just was watching the clock tick down i'm like man if the ball would have been set two seconds ago they would have had those two seconds right Uh, i don't know Mm -hmm. interesting stuff um Josh, man, that's all I got. You got anything else before we sign off? No, I just, again, will say I really appreciate coming back on. It is one of my regrets with having to step away from the fantasy industry is not getting to hang out and chat weekly or regularly with you and Sal. And you mentioned Amico, so many good men and women in the community. So thank you very much for giving me the chance to come and just hang out and talk football again. No, it's, it's a pleasure to have you back. I, I miss you. I mean, I, we have a bunch of good guests on, but I, I miss that kind of repeatability with you where like you and I could have kind of longer narratives that went through the season. And I don't know, that's something I miss, but you know, it's, it's just a different show and that's, that's fine. Um, you mentioned Sal and he did have one prediction he wanted me to throw out on the show. He reluctantly could not, uh, make it to record with us, but his prediction is that Taysom Hill will be the head coach and starting quarterback of the Miami Dolphins next season. <laughs> I like it. So that, that is way bolder than either of our predictions for week 10. I'll, I'll, I'll say that, um, listeners, uh, follow Josh on Twitter at Lake two QBs. Uh, he's again, not on the show regular, but you can still catch him on the, on the tweet machine. Um, well, my dog is barking on episode 100 that I'm just going to leave this in. And so that's probably a, a good sign that we need to wrap this thing up. Uh, once again, thanks Josh for coming on listeners. If you have questions, uh, send them to us on Twitter at two QBs, T W O Q B S. Uh, you can email us longer form stuff two QBs at gmail.com. Please rate, review subscribe share the podcast with other people i know you don't necessarily want the other folks in your league to uh to be getting this sweet sweet two quarterback knowledge but i don't know maybe just share it with the guy in last place because he's not going to catch you is he um anyway thanks again for listening we'll catch you next time on episode 101 adios Hold on, Josh. I'm going to quiet her up. (laughs) Hey, 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 hey. Chelsea. Yo. No. Quiet. Go lay down. Go lay down. Good girl.